really excited right. to be here. Yeah, good stuff today. I'm talking about uh, seeking signs, obtaining witnesses. A little bit about the law of chastity, the character mm -hmm. of God, his nature. Yeah, it'll be good. So welcome everyone. Before we get into our discussion, should we uh, follow up on what we read? Yeah, let's do it. So today we are in Doctrine and Covenants section 63. In this section, the Lord teaches that signs come by faith and that obedient persons receive mysteries of the kingdom. The Lord is also going to emphasize the importance of the law of chastity and counsels regarding the consequences of breaking the law of chastity. And finally, he promises blessings to the faithful at his second coming. So there's a few things that we can talk about today, but we want to focus in on three things in particular. So the first is, what is the difference between seeking signs and seeking a witness from God? Uh, we also want to talk about what it means to live a chaste life and what can we learn about God's character. So in order to help us to dive deeper into these topics, we have invited a wonderful friend of ours, Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Jennifer, it's so good to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming, and thanks for being a part of the show today. Jennifer is a Latter-day Saint relationship and sexuality educator and coach. She has a PhD in counseling and psychology from Boston University, and she's a private coach and counselor in Chicago. So Jennifer, before we begin, I'm wondering, was there anything in this section that you found especially meaningful or jumped out to you? What was your kind of impression of as you were going through these? Yeah, just a few verses that did stand out to me were verses 7 through 10. I see a lot of people who seek for signs, but more as a function of their anxiety or fear. It's a little bit indulgent because it's not asking for moral courage and using your agency to assert choices in a complex world. It's action-based. I remember learning this back in seminary, that faith is about rightful action, even when you don't have a full knowledge and a full understanding, that you're willing to move forward and assert what you honestly believe is right and true, and that when you do, then comes the sign. That is to say, you have the confirmation, you have the fruit of that rightful action, you have the testimony, and you have greater knowledge because you now see what is true from the vantage point of having taken faithful action. And this is so much of what our spiritual development is based in, in my opinion. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for that. So let's go ahead and just dive into that topic a little bit deeper. Uh, what is the difference uh, between seeking signs uh, and obtaining a witness? Maybe to, to begin, Barbara, can you give us a little historical context about what's going on here? Yeah, so we are continuing with these saints. They're trying to create Zion. And people are very destitute. They don't have a lot of money. And the Lord is going to talk to them about um, the importance of becoming like God, the importance of getting the character of God, which is why we start seeing in here this idea of sign seekers, adultery, and the nature and character of God. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I noticed in here is that the Lord seems to often chastise those who seek signs and wonders with the intent to build faith and belief. And my question is, why is it bad or problematic to seek, to seek out a sign in order to obtain uh, faith? Well, I think of seeking a sign, I can look, look at that as like the easy way out. You know, there's not a lot of effort that goes into that, not a lot of faith. When you think of faith, that requires more action on our parts, more to do where, you, you know, when you're seeking a witness, obtaining a witness, you have to work for that. You have to study, you have to pray fast. All those things that build faith and help strengthen your testimony, helps help strengthen that, that witness that you can receive from God instead of just say, just give it to me, you know, so it takes work. Joseph F. Smith has a quote where he says the following, when I as a boy first started out in the ministry, I would frequently go out and ask the Lord to show me something marvelous in order that I might receive a testimony. But the Lord withheld marvels from me and showed me the truth, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, 
until he made me to know the truth from the crown of my head to the soles of my feet, and until doubt and fear had been absolutely purged from me. And then he continued, he did not have to send an angel from the heavens to do this, nor did he have to speak with the trump of an archangel. By the whisperings of the still small voice of the spirit of the living God, he gave to me the testimony I possess. And I love what you're saying there, and it ties into this, is this was a line upon line, precept upon precept type of testimony, that it's not just this instant thing that you're talking about. Yeah, thank you. Now, Jennifer, one of the things I noticed in here is there's a lot of uh, marital imagery, this idea that uh, the Lord compares a sign seeker to somebody who's committing adultery or an adulterer. I'm wondering, why is adultery an appropriate metaphor for this kind of act of sign seeking, do you think? Yeah, I think that the problem with sign seeking is that it's ultimately a bit indulgent. That is, I want something easy. I want something that reassures me. I want something that makes me feel good. Where when this line upon line idea is a character building, he wants us to work hard for our development, for us to really become wiser, to be moral agents that can really discern good and wrong. And I think very similar, I do a lot of work in marriage counseling. And one of the challenges that I often see is that when people confront the struggles in their marriage or pain points in their marriage, they're genuinely opportunities for growth. They often aren't seen that way because they hurt. And it's easy to think something is broken or wrong with the marriage rather than it's a developmental opportunity. And so rather than coming home and doing the harder work that builds your character and your development, you seek for the kind of immediate pleasures and indulgences that you can get in a cheaper form. So I think talking about being an adulterous people, it's both symbolic and literal because we'll take the immediate pleasure over the longer term joy that comes through, through purposeful struggle to mm. develop ourselves into better people. Yeah, it kind of just goes back to, to what Casey was saying, this idea of effort, right, and long-term effects of that. Yeah. Yeah, Sarah. So when I think about signs and things, I often go back to the story of Nephi and his brothers trying to obtain the plates mm -hmm. and how they saw an angel. They experienced a lot of miracles throughout their lives and had these wonderful, miraculous signs that none of us will ever see in our life, mm -hmm. but they still didn't have the testimony. And it was because they didn't have the faith from the beginning. Mm -hmm. They put their trust in man mm -hmm. and in things that were tangible and that they understood here. But Nephi, who had the faith, who understood the power of God, was stronger than anything else. So when we're looking for signs here in our own lives, we would need to have that faith and understanding and that trust in God in order for the sign to have any lasting meaning for mm -hmm. us. Yeah. You know, historically speaking, I'll just throw this out too. You know, Ezra Booth was a person who joined the church and he joined the church quickly. And there's nothing wrong with that except his testimony seemed to be struggling. And so then he kind of sees the work of this, of this prophet. He starts saying, no, this isn't what I was expecting. He goes back and he writes in the Ohio Star scathing things about the prophet Joseph. And he actually becomes very negative because he didn't get what he expected to get from the prophet. And then eventually he leaves the church altogether and becomes agnostic. And you think about, you know, kind of what's going on here and the, and the warnings that the Lord is giving here. Be careful. And just because the Lord isn't showing us what we want to see, we could have real problems. In a sense, that's a sign seeker problem. That's a, an adultery problem. We're not always going to get what we expect to get when we aren't willing to do what the Lord is asking us to do. It's a great comment, Sarah. Thank you. This has been an excellent discussion on seeking signs and what it means and how that's different from attaining a witness. Maybe now we can focus a little bit on living a chaste life. 
Yeah, and Jennifer, what, what have you seen in this section, section 63, as well as other parts of the Doctrine and Covenants that, uh, that are helpful for us to understand regarding living a chaste life? Well, I mean, I think God is pointing out through this passage just how destructive we can be with our sexuality, you know, with pleasure-seeking, right? I often talk to people about how to be in a healthier relationship with sexuality, but there is this often this balance that's really important for us to both understand that sexuality truly is a gift, but it's a gift that it's a powerful way of being in relationship to ourselves and others. So we have to be really wise with it. If I could follow up, one of the uh, verses that stuck out to me was verse 16, and this appears in the New Testament as well. Verily I say unto you, as I have said before, that he that looketh on a woman uh, to lust after her, or if any shall commit adultery in their hearts, they do not have the spirit, but deny the faith and shall fear. What is the difference between just normal, healthy sexual attraction and lust or sexual desire and lust? Help us work through this verse. What exactly do you think it means? Maybe I'll start with a caveat a little bit, which is I think that sometimes people read this verse and it makes them terrified of normal sexual feelings. Because Mm -hmm. if you're alive and awake, you will have those feelings in your life and they're good. They're Mm -hmm. actually a gift from God. They're a blessing. I think what we're being taught here, and it's using the language lust, which I think in our parlance, the way we talk about that, what we mean by lust is to have sexual desire that's exploitative, sexual desire that's advantage taking of another person that's devoid of love. In my view, it's not the presence of sexual feelings. That's not what God finds problematic. It's if you use your sexual feelings to be indulgent or take advantage of another person, to reduce them to something for your gratification rather than another human being, another child of God. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to be really careful with the way we are using this gift because we can use it to create good or great goodness, or we can use it to create great destructiveness. But I think it's important to make a distinction between the presence of desire. You can't really get married without having feelings of desire. It's an important part of courtship and marriage. It's an important part of developing from adolescence into adulthood. And I fear sometimes when we make desire itself somehow problematic that many good people carry a lot of shame and anxiety about a gift and a normal part of development into someone who can really love and be loved in marriage. If I I may, one of the questions I had is we tend to think about chastity as a very embodied thing. It's how I dress. It's how I feel. It's, you know, my desires, my thoughts. I'm wondering, what is the spiritual value of chastity, I guess? I teach the marriage and eternal family uh, here at Brigham Young University. And one of the things that we really try to emphasize is sexuality is of God. Our heavenly parents could not have an eternal posterity if it were not for sexuality. And it's a beautiful thing, and we just need to be teaching it correctly. So I think mm-hmm. this is a good lead-in to what we're trying to help our students understand. Society has really demeaned the role of sexuality. I absolutely agree with that, that it's not just you know a necessary evil in order to reproduce. But in fact, a very important way to create joy and create a bond within a marriage. And I think if we are excessive in either direction, either to shame it and to think that it's wrong and threatening and scary inherently, or to be indulgent and to be excessive or exploitative, 
then in either form, it actually can be destructive either on ourselves or on others. It's beautiful. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, Sarah. You had a comment? So I grew up in a household where public displays of affection were not common. And in our relationship, I think I've completely done a 180 from my parents because, you know, we try and show as much affection in front of our kids as possible. And I think a lot of parents, you know, can influence their children's understanding of sexuality and intimacy by uh, allowing their kids to see that love and affection towards each other. And I, I know my kids like to make faces and say, ooh, gross, but... Um, <laughs> but they love it, don't they? Yeah. Don't you, Logan? <laughs> That's great. Thank you for that. And, and just kind of on this point of, uh, you know, the way we kind of convey our understanding of sexuality and spirituality to our children, uh, one of the things that we typically associate with chastity is this, uh, this idea of modesty and what modesty is. Uh, in your experience, what are some productive and maybe some unproductive ways to teach modesty to, to people? Yeah. So I think it's really important to teach modesty to boys and girls, men and women, in this notion of respect for self and others. That will shape the way that you dress. But of course, it's not about covering up your whole body because you're afraid of the fact that you're a sexual being, but more a respectful regard for your body and for the people around you. That will shape the the context of what you're doing would then shape what would be respectful clothing to wear in this particular situation in context. We often teach the idea that girls are responsible through their dress for boys' behavior. And just as a starting point, no one can control the thoughts and feelings and behavior of another person. You can only control your own. And so to imply at any point that someone is responsible for someone else's thoughts gives, well, a woman in particular, the burden of thinking that she has to manage what other people think and do. The problem with that, of course, is that, well, there's multiple problems, but it creates anxiety in women about their sexual nature, about the gift of their sexuality, because they feel afraid of it. They're afraid they're creating thoughts and feelings in another person that they can't control. The second thing is it teaches women to not trust men. Because if you give the idea that men can't handle the gift that God has given to them, then it is the idea that then why would you want to open up and give your heart to a spouse in marriage? But then the third thing it does is I think it actually teaches men that they don't have to be fully responsible, that they can hold women responsible for their behavior rather than, as President Holland talks about, this importance that you take full responsibility for yourself and your relationship to your sexuality, men and women, girls and boys. So as a parent, Mm -hmm. how soon and what kind of approach one utilizes when teaching that to children, Mm -hmm. the talk of chastity and, and, you know, uh, modesty and things like that? Well, I think that's a great question. I think that we as parents teach a lot before we ever start talking about sexuality and modesty per se. And we can teach a lot that's good. Most importantly, to embrace and be grateful for this body that God has given us. And, you know, kissing and hugging your children is extremely important for them to feel comfortable and feel loved within their bodies. And that is giving a message that's not even verbalized that really is a powerful message for kids. Ages 8 to 12 is a really critical time for starting to talk to kids about the reality of reproduction and what sexuality is. 
and really downloading your moral paradigm, how you think about sexuality and how kids can understand how to be in relationship to their sexuality. And you want to be careful not to bring fear into those messages. A lot of times we teach kids the idea that their sexuality controls them rather than that they are in charge of their sexuality. And it's really important for them to know that they are the decision makers and the choosers. With respect to modesty, I would just say one thing is that you want to be careful that you're not sexualizing your children, especially your girls, which tends to happen, by focusing on modesty and modest behavior prematurely. A lot of times people are talking to their eight and nine-year-olds about bare shoulders and tank tops and unwittingly actually sexualizing their girls. And I think it's important to not do that, to not have girls start thinking about the minds of boys and onlookers because it robs them of a peace with themselves. Once our kids are nearing adolescence or are hitting adolescence, that's a time to start talking to them more explicitly about how they handle this gift of their more overt sexuality because they've hit puberty and how they can stay respectful to themselves and others through their behavior and how they dress. That was a great comment. Thank you. Jennifer, we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much yeah, for your thank insights. You. Thank you. And Jennifer, we're going to say goodbye to you from here. So this has been a great discussion about uh, living a chaste life. Now maybe we can talk a little bit more about uh, God's character in section 63. Yeah, let's do it. It's a great topic. So we see in section 63 uh, a, a different side of God than we've seen mostly throughout the scriptures. And this is a very angry seemingly a very angry God. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it appears in, in verses 2 and 6 and 11 and 32 and 33, God's angry with the wicked, with the faithless, and those who seek after signs to build faith. I mean, in some senses, one might argue, you really get a kind of one-sided portrayal of God. And as both from our experience, our personal experiences with him and both elsewhere in scripture, we see that that's not all there is to his character. And we had a video, I think, from a viewer at home who had a question about this. Yeah. Hi, we're the Civic Kids from Southern California, and the question that we have for you is how do we navigate through the contrary depictions of God, such as in Doctrine and Covenants 63, verse 34, it says, And the saints also shall hardly escape. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, am with them. Similarly, in verse 26, it says, Nevertheless, I, the Lord, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. But in verse 40, it says, And let all the monies which can be spared, it mattereth not unto me, whether it be little or much, be sent up unto the land of Zion, unto them whom I have appointed to receive. So maybe we can throw that out to our audience first. What do you all think? We have these different depictions of God in different places. Are they contrary? Are they complementary? How, how do you reconcile these? Well, we're his children, right? And so uh, I would expect him to have the gamut of emotions that we have. Mm -hmm. and, and it's kind of like when Nephi talks about opposites, we got to have happiness and sadness in order to appreciate the happiness, right? Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't expect my, my father to be just one-sided if I'm not. And uh, I think when Heavenly Father is portrayed as, as angry, it's, it's kind of like, come on, come on, you guys, you can do better than this. In fact, there's a quote from Elder Maxwell, actually right online with what you're saying here. He says the following, God's anger is kindled not because we have harmed him, but because we have harmed ourselves. It's not like God is like, I am so mad at you because you've hurt me, and he's upset because of who we are as children hurting ourselves or hurting other people. 
as a parent, I don't want to lie to my children and say to them, I'm pleased with you all day long, when in reality I'm not. I mean, they're going to have a false impression of me as their mother. Uh, it's the same way we would have a false impression of, of our father, too. I'm reminded of that, uh, you know, Alma 5 through 9 in the Book of Mormon, when Alma's going through different cities to preach to the people. And depending on kind of their spiritual state, his, his rhetoric and the way he presents himself is a little bit different. Uh, in the first city, he's very fire and brimstone, very, you've, enkind- very uh, you've kindled the wrath of God and you know, you're going to be punished and destroyed and things like that. And then as he goes through different cities and people are more righteous, uh, he focuses on different things. He's teaching more about the atonement of Jesus Christ and the blessings that come from righteousness and things like that. So I don't necessarily think that, that, that these depictions are, are contrary as, as much as they are portraying the multifaceted uh, nature of God and the way he responds to us according to our needs, right? Um, you mentioned that sometimes a God or a parent is is angry with us and that elicits a certain responsiveness, fear and regret and we want to repent. And that's, I mean, he responds in the way that we need so that we can get where he wants us to be, I think, sometimes. And it also tells us about the people who are here in section 63 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is historically speaking. He's not just speaking to one individual. He's speaking mm-hmm. to a variety of people. So with some, he is well-pleased. And with some, he's not well-pleased. And some mm-hmm. are selfish and some are very selfless. And, and so to some, he is going to offer everything he can and, and give them the blessings of the righteousness. And to some, he is going to give them the, a little bit of the hellfire and damnation. Like, you've got to repent. This is serious, right? But he's doing all of this for the purpose of helping his children. Uh, I love this idea of trying to imitate the attributes of our Heavenly Father and embody them in our own lives. I'm wondering, as you've tried to imitate and cultivate God-like attributes, what have you learned from those experiences? God's character is like, he protects us. We're his children. He loves us. Um, he wants to share his love, his teachings his lessons to make us better for who we are. I believe that he has something more than uh, what we think he has. It's a great comment. For many, we understand our Father in heaven by how we understand our own fathers. I know that my Father in heaven protects me because my Father has protected me. And I know my Father in heaven loves me because my Father loves me. We try to become what our Heavenly Father wants to become, and in the process, we're helping our children to have a testimony of our Heavenly Parents based upon how we are. But just like you're saying, I would imagine you probably have an amazing Father. He's an inspirational motivator. The only time that he gets down is on the dance floor. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it sounds silly a little bit, Mm -hmm. Hook, but it seems to me that you have a, a strong relationship as you're talking about your father, and in so doing, you will come to know your father in heaven even better. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful comment. Thank you. Yeah, Noah. I realized while we were talking on the subject that God always keeps his promises. That's one of his greatest attributes. If he says he'll do something, he'll always do it. Although, don't always expect a yes from him. But if he does say yes, you can count on him carrying it through. Excellent. He's not trying to raise entitled children, but he is trying to raise trusting children, right? Great comment, Noah. Going out what Noah said, God does keep his promises, but he wants to be sure that we can fulfill our end as well. Because if we don't fulfill our end, his end's not going to matter because the entire arrangement is not going to be true. And he's not going to ask more of us than he is willing to help us with, right? 
that's one of the points we have in Section 63 is he's with us in this process. He's with the missionaries. He's with us as people. Yes, times are difficult, but if we turn to him, he'll make it possible for us to move forward. So this has been an excellent discussion on God's character and how other people possessing God like attributes can point us towards God. It was so great having Jennifer on this call with us. We really appreciate her being here again. We want to thank all of you as well. We appreciate you, our audience members, for your wonderful thoughts, your insights, uh, the things that you've shared, and you're diving a little bit deeper into the scriptures. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And to those of you at home, thanks for your comments and questions and insights that you shared with us via social media. Uh, We'd love to have you come join us in the studio sometime. But if you can't, we hope you'll tune in next week and join us on Come Follow Up. Thanks. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.